Welcome to Heal Podcast. I'm a trauma psychotherapist and your host, Lucy Ritchie. I'm so excited for today's show because we are sitting with none other than Dr. Nicole LaPera, aka The Holistic Psychologist. As the name implies, Nicole is a holistic psychologist who studied at numerous schools, including Cornell University, the New School for Social Research, and the Philadelphia School for Psychoanalysis. She is the founder of the global community healing membership, Self Healer Circle, and the New York Times bestselling author of How to Do the Work. Nicole is also the author of How to Meet Yourself, and she has just released her new book, How to Be the Love You Seek. Nicole is so graciously joining us today to discuss a topic I am particularly interested in, which is how we uncover our subconscious conditioned selves and how can we begin to shift into our authentic selves. So for those of you who are new to this concept of how to shift from our conditioned selves to our authentic selves, there's a list of free downloads at healpodcast.com. So feel free to go there and just download whatever you feel is helpful and get those in your inbox for free. And if you're also looking to dive deeper into the understanding of shifting into the authentic self, then come join our waitlist. And don't worry, that's also free at healpodcast.com. And you'll receive emails on how you can be part of upcoming teachings. Now let's start the show. Hello, and welcome, Nicole, to Heal Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Lucy. I'm really excited to connect with you, your community. I'm honored. Mm, the honor's all mine. And I was so honored too, that you shared a copy of your upcoming book with me, how to be the love you seek. This book is so descriptive, raw, helpful, and honest. I just like, I honestly couldn't put it down as a trauma therapist and teacher. I have a pretty strong community base where I get to share about the creation of the subconscious patterns and how, when repeated over time, these patterns can become so embedded that we can lose sense of who we are. And this conditioning can really look like part of, you know, our personality in your book, you do such a thorough job of being granular with this concept. And I'd love for you to share a little bit of that process with us today, if you would. Absolutely. And for me, um, I'm first foremost, thank you. I'm happy that you're resonating with the book. It's such an interesting thing to put out a piece of work like this and then to be in the waiting mode of how will people receive it? <laughs> what will it be like to experience reading it? And then of course, now yeah. having the opportunity to have a conversations around it, yeah. making that distinction and really seeing in action um, how powerful the subconscious was. Even for me, um, coming from a very psychoanalytically trained environment where, you know, we do have an understanding that our childhood and I'll map that onto the subconscious in just a second, but how it very much is impactful. I really didn't truly understand what that would look like in the clinical space, in the clinical room. And when I was practicing very much more traditionally doing, you know, what many of us think of as talk therapy, not really having conversations about the body and the nervous system, which is very much impacted by our subconscious habits and patterns. I kept finding myself, and I talk a lot about this in my first book, how to do the work, just as stuck right alongside of all the clients that I was working with. Incredibly insightful humans, beautiful awarenesses we would talk about each and every week. And yet they continued to struggle to create the change that they were looking for. So mm -hmm. our subconscious mind, for me, learning about it, not only as a concept, but seeing it enact it. Um, through the daily habits and patterns and the ways in which we care for our physical body and the ways in which we navigate our emotions or our emotional body and the ways in which we relate to other people and the world around us. So 
All of that mm-hmm. conditioning, those habits and patterns that I was just referencing are formed in our earliest environments, in our childhood, um, based on, again, the consistency or inconsistency of physical and emotional care that we received. And because our subconscious, we're so physiologically driven, mm-hmm. we prefer the familiarity, the sense of control and predictability you know, that comes with those habits that many of us have repeated for a lifetime. That's why I continue to see that bridge, as I call it, unable to be built. So much insight right, from this conscious, beautiful, powerful part of our mind mm-hmm. gets so much drive to continue to repeat those habits and patterns, even those that were causing the greatest suffering in our lives. Mm, yeah. People don't know they're living unconsciously. Most of us are relating to ourselves through our conditioning. And we're also expressing that conditioned version outwardly, yet we don't know that's what we're doing. So how would you suggest then that we come to learn about our own conditioning? I mean, to speak to your very wise point, we are so blinded um, from our own patterns, even those of us that have incredible amounts of insight and even spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves, analyzing ourselves, And very interestingly, um, of my opinion, at least, is that that in and of itself can be a distraction, yeah. right? If I'm always in endless self-analysis, self-awareness, you know, awareness, if I'm reading all of the self-help books, right, consuming all of this at a more logical, distanced space, then a byproduct of that often is I'm not actually really present to what's going on beneath the surface. Yeah. So to become present as simplistic as it sounds, the practice is, in my opinion, incredibly Mm life-changing. When I was in my early 20s, I actually met the concept of mindfulness, this idea of right being this floating awareness, being present to ourselves and present to the current moment. Though it took me over a decade, if not close to two, to be able to actually embody that practice of becoming present. So again, I think this, when we talk about becoming conscious of our subconscious, it seems so easy on the surface, even too easy, it won't actually create change. But what we're really talking about is learning how to witness all of the habitual, repetitive thoughts that go through our mind throughout the day. Um, The thoughts that which are coloring for many of us are experiences, then dropping our presence even a little bit deeper from our thinking mind. This is, I think, where many of us struggle and becoming present to our physiology, our body. Mm -hmm. For me, learning that emotions weren't just intellectual concepts really mapped on to physiological shifts and changes or really simply things we can feel in our body. So again, another level of awareness is becoming present to the fact that We're in a physical body. It has sensations. And again, some of us are so, I lived for decades, a million miles away, as I call it, on my spaceship, completely disconnected from all the overwhelming emotions in my physical body. So very much I said, oh, emotionally, I'm I'm fine. I'm great. And I'm neutral. In reality, I was not connected to all of the different overwhelming emotions that I had been carrying. So beginning again to pay attention to what are the different physiological sensations that are coursing through your body at any given time. And when we're speaking about conditioning, we really are quite habitual in those areas. You'll begin to notice we tell ourselves the same story. We assign the same meetings to the events happening around us. We tend to feel or get stuck in the same emotions or sensations. And then ultimately that results in our behavioral habits, what we habitually do, how we react to certain circumstances, to certain thoughts and to certain emotions. And even within certain relationships entirely, 
and this maps onto the concept of conditioned selves. Um, for many of us, our entire way of being has become, you know, a byproduct of our earliest environments and the habitual ways that our nervous system has learned to gain the safety and the security that was present. Yeah. And it's interesting because when we think about conditioning, it's the result of repeated strategies to survive. There's like a security-based investment in developing a persona um, that's not authentic to who we are because maybe that persona was what the tribe sort of bonded on. Maybe that was their way of being. So from an evolutionary lens, once upon a time, acclimating meant that it was a chance for survival and a chance to belong to a tribe. Whereas if we didn't acclimate, it could be a risk of being rejected from that tribe, leaving us, you know, to fend for ourselves amongst the lions, tigers, and bears of the jungle. I actually have a a free ebook that talks about this on healpodcast.com. So for those of you who are interested, you can certainly go there and download that free ebook to learn a little bit more about the evolutionary lens. But the point that I'm making here is that there is a strong investment and of course, neural circuitry that hold these patterns or deep conditionings um, entrenched in a sense of security. And for you, acclimating to your environment was what you needed to do. In your book, you mentioned the cold environment that did not support emotions. And that was the environment that you were raised in. So you sort of severed those emotions away unconsciously, of course. And if it's okay, I'd like to just mention your mother. Yes, absolutely. In the relationship. Oh, she's a big part of my conditioning. So absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So first, I just, I want to say that um, I did learn that your mother is no longer with us. So I want to give you my sincere condolences for your loss. Thank you. And, and when you write about your relationship with your mother, someone had mentioned that the relationship you had with your mom and maybe even the relationship she had with one or both of your siblings was like that of a medic with their patient. Sort of like the relationship was bound by urgency, urgent care, but lacked that emotional connection that children need to develop in a felt sense of safety. For me, um, really becoming more consciously aware and exploring what my relationship was with my early caregivers was a huge, my mom in particular, a huge shift because for decades of my life, I would have professed that nothing happened. My mom was physically present. She was very much urgently in care of my physical needs. One of the major ways that she learned to love, quote unquote, and connect um, with myself and my two other siblings, and even with my father, her partner, was through these acts of physical care. And for me, really understanding, again, the impact of our emotional world, that not only that we have one, you know, beginning at a very young age, even though I was so disconnected from mine, that we needed that safely attuned caregiver. Because mm-hmm. when we don't have, as you're saying, not only will we adapt and modify, it's really painful when we're left or excluded, ostracized from that group or that tribe, like you were describing evolutionarily, mm-hmm. There's neuroscience research that shows that social exclusion, right, not having those intimate bonds, emotional included, activates the pain pathways Mm -hmm. in our physical brain. So that, you know, isolation that I had experienced for me was so deeply wounding and, of course, created all of these conditioned ways that I showed up. And understanding a bit more of my mom and her own past with her own family. Mm -hmm 
um, coming from very shut down caregivers. She too had two physically present caregivers up until her early 20s when her father, who very much was of the old belief of children are to be seen and not heard, would go to work, would come home. Her mother was very cold and withdrawn, my my grandmother. My, my, my grandfather would come home and literally put up the newspaper and ignore the children entirely mm-hmm. um, until he was, my mom was about 23 years old and he dropped dead suddenly of a major heart attack. Oh, um, so also in my mom's childhood, this is something else I came to know later in life, she had a fourth sibling that died uh, when they were a toddler, um, just one day did not wake up. So I'm sharing that to say there was a lot of health related, medical related anxiety, and I would even call outright trauma. Absolutely. So my mom marries very early, has uh, my two older siblings who are 15 and 18 years older than me. And my older sister, the one 15 years older than me, also had a lot of health-related crises in childhood and was hospitalized, um, actually flatlined for a bit of time, was brought back very gratefully. So my mom, saying that to say, was so shut down, didn't have the emotional attunement, of course, in her own childhood, Mm -hmm. and then continued to have very real physical trauma, Um, found out she was pregnant with me when she was 42, Mm -hmm. thought at first that the symptoms of morning sickness were stomach cancer, not surprising because all of this health-related anxiety kind of streaming through her. So by the time I was born, right, it began to make sense of that description for me. My mom very much was hypervigilant to any sort of physical or medical symptomology because of all her own health-related trauma. That was her only ability to create that care and connection, which for decades of time, even in the past within the field, parents were taught that that was the only needs that a child had, physical needs, keep them alive, right? Like a plant, emotional needs. So it was of no fault of my own, my mom's own. She didn't have the information. She didn't have her own resilience or ability to attune to her own emotions. So it very much mapped onto then her parenting of all three of us siblings was much more of this urgent, just keep these children alive, make sure that they're okay. A lot of health anxiety that got passed on to me, as well as a lack of emotional or stress resilience, which is why I checked out, went away from my body for so long and lived on my spaceship for those decades of time. Yeah. And I I love how you shared that your journey towards embodiment didn't come overnight. It took over a decade of incremental shifts. The fact that you, the holistic psychologist, can say it's not a sprint, I believe that alone can help alleviate some of the pressure that many feel, and again, including therapists and um, doctors, the like, to be fully embodied 24-7. It just doesn't work that way. Most of us are disconnected to some degree and right playing these roles in our relationships that are that state of disconnection. So for me, it was extra confusing because one of the conditioned ways I've dealt with my disconnection, if I wasn't safe in my body, the way that I was able to gather the most amount of presence and connection with my mom was through achievement Mm -hmm. academically and athletically. So that which I think looked on the outside, right, is I was doing great. I was successful in all of these ways. I mean, geez, some decades down the line, I would get my PhD, right, that I didn't understand that that even that adaptation, the way that I squashed then and was so disconnected from the daily stressful experiences, emotional experiences of life was actually the function of keeping myself separate or out of my body, right? If I just keep 
playing this role, whether it was continue to succeed in life, you know, checking all of those endless boxes of achievement, or whether it was within my relationships, always appearing that I was fine. I didn't have emotional needs. I wasn't connected to them. And if I was, I felt too vulnerable to express them to another person because my mind would go right down the pathway that it learned what happens. No one is here or present to show up. So living in a disembodied state, I think for so many of us has many different, you know, kind of repercussions or consequences. Mm -hmm. The first most simple one foundationally is you're not connected to the physical body you're living in. So often you're not attuned to what your individual needs are. You're not meeting your body's daily needs for nutrients, for oxygen, for water, for rest, for movement, because you're not paying attention to your body. And the reason why I, I shout at those out in particular, I believe there are core needs that our nervous system to be regulated, right? Consistently, we need to be attending to our physical body mm -hmm. in those areas. And then of course, you know, when we're disembodied from our emotional world, not only are we suppressing very real energies, yeah. we now have a ton of research, you know, that concludes that they can have so much impact on our physical wellness or lack thereof, in addition to our psychological wellness, right? If we're not tending to and navigating and processing our emotions, we can have a whole host of symptoms, mm -hmm. though in reality, we're keeping ourselves shut off from a whole aspect of our being. Yeah. Our emotional world is what colors us and animates us as humans. And then when we kind of translate that disembodiment or disconnection within our, our relationships, then many of us are left feeling disconnected, unfulfilled, unsupported, lonely even, mm -hmm. even if we're in active partnerships with other people. Yeah. And it makes sense because there's no template for us to really know what does this look like, feel like. So it's really scary to sort of shift into something that we don't really know what we're shifting into. As you show, it takes small, consistent daily practices to make an eventual big change. You've done this work yourself through consciousness. Would you share with us how it can look like to bridge into this more conscious version of ourselves? I didn't actually even begin to attempt to live conscious or mindfully until I began to suffer like screaming out physical symptoms. I started to actually faint um, in my early 30s um, out of nowhere. On two occasions, I lost consciousness the first time so much. So I hit my head quite hard. I think I had post-concussive syndrome, syndrome after that. And at this point, I started to very much aligned. I'm happy I went down that kind of path of all the health anxiety. So I, my first thought was, oh my gosh, here's that brain issue that I've been waiting. Um, I was of course recollecting my inability to, in my, in my high school years, I became very well aware that I struggled to recall my childhood experiences when all my friends would be sitting around talking about, you know, childhood memories and things like that. I didn't have much to contribute. I couldn't recall what had happened in my own childhood. And I saw similarly when I would hang out with friends, those I would have for, you know, periods of time, there would even be moments where like, do you remember when last year we were here and did that? And I'd be like, mm, no, I don't. And so much so it became a running joke within my friend group that, oh, Nicole never remembers anything. So, you know, I would go along with the joke. I would laugh in it though. Secretively, I was like, oh my gosh, is something wrong with my brain? And then flash forward into my thirties, I start fainting. So I'm like, oh, this is confirmation, right? Whatever it is that was been brewing in my brain for this long, break down my health anxiety, this must be the ultimate symptom. And I was scared. Yeah. And I went online 
Um, and I think as many of us do before I went to the doctors, I was like, I'm going to do some Google research and diagnose <laughs> what this is going to be. So I'm yeah. prepared. Google and doc. I, seriously, I was on Google <laughs> doc and thank God for that because I started to then go down rabbit hole after rabbit hole of research about the human body, really learning about epigenetics as opposed to just what I had been taught for decades of time, this idea of genetics determine everything. And now it's like, oh, the environment and lifestyle. And then I learned about the nervous system and the gut health and inflammation and all of these states of nervous system dysregulation. And now I started to have some new awareness for why I was having the symptom that I was having from the inability to recall my early childhood experience mm -hmm. because of the overwhelming stress and mm -hmm. the impact that cortisol has on the hippocampus or one of the main areas of our brain that determine yeah. memory. For me, I located that stress right back to being in uterus when my mom thought I was stomach cancer instead of a growing, developing baby. How stressed must my mom have been for that period of time. And then her inability to help me co-regulate through life stressful emotions. No wonder why I was unable to recall so much of my childhood. And then living on my spaceship for some three plus decades at that point, I was overstepping because I was so driven to, to succeed, to excel. I wasn't paying attention to any of my body's limits. Yeah. I wasn't feeding it what it needed. I wasn't sleeping in the way I needed. I was, while I was living in a city and I would walk to and from work, I wasn't moving and stretching all of the energy and stagnant and stuck, you know, stuff that I had been carrying for so long. And those acts of, or those moments of lost consciousness were really the final step of my nervous system journey where I just was completely done. I was depleted. Um, and it was no surprise. Now I had this new awareness of the body piece mm -hmm. of the role. It was no surprise at the timing. The timing for me was at the moment of, I checked the final box on my achievements. I had the successful practice. It was located in Philadelphia, my quote unquote hometown. I moved back from living almost a decade in New York City to be close to my family, to open up shop where I thought I was gonna live forever, which meant I had access to my family. I was consistently expected to be present, whether it was for family, you know, Sunday supper, you know, very Italian household I come from, or the continued health crises or issues that were continuing to occur with my mom in particular, who had chronic illness. So for me, right at this time when all of this conditioning and all of this wounding was being reactivated, the first time I fainted actually was at a childhood friend's house oh my God. who I hadn't seen for a long time, who I met, I think I was nine years old and she was six years old. She more or less became my sister. We spent so much time together. She was a neighbor. So again, all of this old wounding to the surface, my body just completely depleted and shut down, right? Me living this self of this overachiever, never having physical needs, never having emotional needs, never asking for support just ended up in all of these symptoms coming crashing down. And of course, I would be lying if I said I overhauled my life from top to bottom starting the next day because there was so much wisdom when you shared the actual practice of change. Yeah. The further we go out from the habitual patterns, whatever they might be, however it is that you're living in this moment, the further we go out, if we do try to overhaul life from top to bottom starting tomorrow, we're only going to create so much stress on our nervous system that before long, some of us might be able to white knuckle this, you know, lifestyle change for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. though before long, we're right back in those old habitual ways that we've learned how to deal with stress. So I too like to explain all this to relieve the shame that I think does come with the many of us who come to the awareness of the changes that we want to or need to make 
and then set these commitments and then find ourselves right back in those old habits. It really is the daily practice in my membership self-healer circle. I have a concept that we call small daily promises, which really is an emphasis on small ways. What are, what is one small choice you can make starting tomorrow and try to keep more consistently than not. And it does like you beautifully shared, it does over time translate to you begin to realize you're more embodied. You're more connected. Yeah. Life feels different. You're able to pause before reacting and be more responsive though. I would be lying if I said it happens overnight because it doesn't. And there's a reason again, wired into us why it, it most likely can't and won't. You raise a good point here. We can't obliterate our conditioned selves and in your book. And like you just mentioned, your coping strategy was to be an overachiever, but you weren't aware that this way was your conditioned way of finding safety in an otherwise disconnected relationship with your family and with your true self, really. But once you tick that box of achievement, something shifted and you realized that this version of achievement was not aligned for you. Although this wasn't like a rock bottom, like many people tend to coin the end and start of a new identity, um, it was an inner felt sense that promoted sort of a need to um, like do deeper reflection and taking steps towards change. I just, I'll quickly go back to what I would call that rock yeah. bottom. I would call it what I now have the language for is my dark night of the soul. And I just wanted to mention that here, because again, I think this is another place where we carry a lot of shame. I checked that box of achievement. I had this life that I was living right around me in all of these successful ways, mm -hmm. yet I felt such a, a deep hole. Yeah. I did not, I didn't feel fulfilled. And I shamed myself for, for a lot of the time because I would almost kind of zoom out and be like, well, Nicole, you have no reason. I was at this point mm -hmm. working with clients who didn't even have a home over their head, you know, didn't have like the this somewhat financial security that I was building at that time through the practice, right? Yeah. They didn't have it. And so I very much went into this cycle of, I have no reason to feel mm -hmm. unfulfilled and this kind of very much this shaming mode. So I just wanted to mention that. And that all yeah. comes back to, I wasn't connected to my body. Yeah. In my body, again, as simplistic as this may sound, is where my heart lives, yeah. right? Where all of those deeper emotions and the ability to be in alignment with ourself begins with making sure that our physical needs are met so that we can even, um, I in my workbook, How to Meet Yourself, I adapted uh, Abraham Maslow's kind of pyramid of needs. And, you know, at the top of that, very similar to kind of his model of self-actualization, I have creativity you know, imagination, play, those were just beautiful purpose, passion, right? Those were just concepts I read about for me in a book, right? Other people had those aspects of, of their lived experience. I, I must've missed that genetic chip or so I thought, though the reality and the reason why I'm bringing this in here is if I'm not grounded in my own presence, if my nervous system isn't safe, if it's stuck in that survival mode mm -hmm. for the many of you out there who feel like maybe you're not a creative being, you don't have purpose, you don't have passion. The reality for you might be as it was for me, you're not in a regulated enough nervous system to feel safe in the moment, to be able to be purposeful and passionate and creative. You sort of followed the felt sense of your heart is what you mentioned in your book. And interestingly, there's a lot of science showing that the heart has its own mini brain. It has neurons surrounding it. It holds profound intuition. 
and it can deeply impact our overall well-being in many ways. But in one particular way that I'd love to explore is through high heart rate variability. When I discovered that disconnection um, and the power of the heart, not only does it send out incredible electromagnetic signals like you're describing in a mini brain, um, mm -hmm. as our brain and our nervous system is through neuroception, right outside of our awareness, of course, scanning the environment, our heart is doing that. And it's reaching a greater distance, sending out our own electromagnetic signals. And it's also gathering electromagnetic signals at a greater distance than even our brain. And our heart has the ability, as much as in the field for so long, we used to you know, kind of praise the power of the brain, which is incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. the heart and whether or not it is, you know, in a coherent state, beating in a rhythmic pattern or irregular pattern, incoherent state, it has the ability to create that same state of coherence or incoherence in the brain. And so yeah. even just tying all of this together, heart rate variability, what that is, is our heart's ability to become stressed, right? To begin to beat faster. I'm really simplifying this, of course. Mm -hmm. And then to quickly be able to downregulate, to go back into a calmer rhythm of, of beating. And the more able, the greater the heart rate variability we have, um, our heart doesn't just beat like a metronome with the same amount of seconds between each beat. It's actually quite variable. The more distance between heartbeats, the more able, we're actually able to scientifically measure, the more able our body is to do that when we're stressed, to become stressed, yeah. again, simplifying it, and then become unstressed. And that's something that physiologically we're conditioned when we have that safety and the security, right? That calm grounded nervous system to help us in those moments of stress, when we're dysregulated and crying as a child, to have that soothing voice or to have that hug that which we need or that emotional mm -hmm. support, helping our body physiologically calm down, the more we're able to tolerate stressful and upsetting emotions, the greater the heart rate variability we have, we can become stressed and become unstressed in that grounded, grounded state of presence. And then we're more likely to be able to attune to our heart and to the mm -hmm. messages of our heart, right? We're in more alignment. Our body feels safer because when we're not, when we're in that state of incoherence or when we don't have that heart rate variability, we're mm -hmm. becoming overwhelmed. What's living in our body is overwhelming stress, upsetting emotions. We're yeah. not able to turn our attention inward and to actually then begin to explore what our deeper desires are, what our purpose and what our passion. So for me, you know, as my journey continued foundationally, beginning to care for my body, learning how to stress my body, because for so long, the moment my body became stressed, I felt discomfort in my muscles, right? My heart rate started to elevate. It would mimic panic attacks that I experienced through my 20s. I didn't mm -hmm. have the ability in my body to tolerate that. So I would just continue to check out. So teaching my mm -hmm. body physiologically by stressing it in small moments. For me, that meant cold therapy, right? Learning to cold, turn my shower yeah. a little bit colder, even though I hate it. My mind's yeah. racing and asking me, like, telling me, why are you doing this? Nicole? It's not doing anything, right? <laughs> and learning how to calmly and deeply breathe through that in that moment, yeah. allowing right stress to happen and to come back into stress. And of course, flash forward many years in time of building in these daily foundational practices, but building this back to the deeper desires of the heart, I felt mm -hmm. safer and safer. Right. Not just focusing on my those base level needs, right? My physiological needs or my emotional needs in any given moment. I felt able to reattune 
to what it is that I really wanted in life and what my purpose and my passion really were. And that's when I was able to make a big shift in the way that I was working. It came to my awareness that I much more resonate with exactly what I do now, which what I would call it more of the embodiment of a teacher, right? A mm -hmm. lifelong learner who likes to understand information and then put it out in a way through speaking on podcasts like this, through writing books, um, through the membership that I have, through some courses that I'm going to be creating in the future, right? I like to give information to others so that they can, my hope is to empower themselves to create change. So the yeah. bottom line of all of this is connecting and building in these moments of regulation of ability to turn inward, which included my heart and teaching my body how to tolerate more and more stress had allowed me to really connect with the fact that I do have a purpose. I do yes. have a passion. I'm driven by it on the daily though. Again, it begins in the morning where I have to fight that overachiever personality that wants to dive right into my to-do list, right? And make the choice instead to make sure that I'm caring for the physical body and tending to my nervous system so that when I'm here, I'm fully embodied. I'm present with these conversations mm -hmm. that I'm having, I'm in flow and therefore I'm able to be of much greater service to whatever it is that I'm doing. I'm so happy for you. You have sort of arrived to yourself, if you will. And I love the word flow. It's like this present energy that's in harmony or in rhythm or coherence <laughs> to use all the words um, with our, our hearts and our exterior world. And as it pertains to the exterior world, we can actually be in connection with others from an impossible distance, so to speak. And for those of you who are about to say, okay, this is woo-woo or pseudoscience, it's not. So Nicole, in your book, you discuss research on non-local consciousness, which is kind of the ability to embody the essence of someone who is far away, which can actually transmit that sense from within us to them. So for example, praying for someone deeply and saying their names specifically when you are praying can create shifts. So I've never heard of this until your book and I was pretty fascinated by it. And I'm sure our listeners will be as well. I was so fascinated, Lucy, when I first came upon this, this concept and being someone who likes to see the cold hard facts of science, yeah. uh, hearing and reading and going down that rabbit hole of all of the research. So simply what non-local consciousness is uh, foundationally like I mentioned first it's built in the science of energy um, the reality that our reality whether you know it's our physical us as humans our natural world around us everything has an energetic component of course we see the very material physical I'm looking at a physical body right in front of me mm -hmm. that is you very beautiful though <laughs> there is an energy right that's interacting and Again, so when I understood, you know, energy and that energy animates everything that is a part of our, you know, global human natural world, our entire experience here, then I began to understand how non-local consciousness could come to be, which is the connectedness that happens and can happen within energy or at the energy level, meaning you can be physically distanced. And I'll just give a very common example that many of you might even have experienced yourselves when you think or you have a feeling, right? A, a lot of times in the research has been done really heavily around parents, many parents who have, right? And it's, I think this is a difficult thing to consider, but a bad feeling. And then lo and behold, you know, a couple minutes later, they might get a call that their child is sick or was in an accident, right? It's that kind of state of communication. There was a shift. They could have been going about their day, you know, a very joyful mm -hmm. day even, yet 
out of seemingly nowhere, they just get this, again, I'll use a word that maybe is more common, a gut instinct or something mm-hmm. feels off. And mm-hmm. then they get that, they receive the message of whatever it is that feels off. Another common example, you think of someone and then before you know it, you pick up your phone and you have an email or a, te- or a text from that someone. So again, these are just common examples that thought that popped into your head, again, seemingly out of nowhere, was in a sense that energetic state of communication from that person thinking of you and having hit send on that text or on that email. And again, this happens and exists because energy, um, and again, I went down the whole rabbit hole of, you know, the quantum energy field and entanglement and the reality being, again, the closer you are in energetic knowledge of someone. So a mother and a child, right? That energetic experience of knowing them on that deep emotional level or that vibration allows then these states of communication that can happen. So I know there's been many moments where, you know, I had a thought and then before I know it, I'm like, oh my gosh, so weird. You're calling me and you're not someone that I thought about in quite some time yet here you are. Um, so these states of energy, conversation, communication are so powerful because of what it really does show, in my opinion, um, and the last chapter of my book really embodies this idea. It's you know around universal consciousness, which is that we are all so connected on such a deep level to the extent that even the science that I continue to cite, it's so new. There's so much of it. While we do have scientific evidence of a lot of it, we're still even struggling to figure out the equipment to study so much more of it. And I just think, well, I think for some of us, it can feel scary. Oh my gosh, there's things that we don't know and aren't so tangible. I think the other side of that is that can be so empowering and so hopeful um, for all that is, you know, an aspect of our, you know, inherent existence, even the fact that we are energy just as much as that we are matter, though, that we are connected just as much as we are disconnected. So many of us live feeling so disconnected, though the reality of it was or is, you know, in terms of our core existence, there is this commonality. And again, there is, in my opinion, and can be so much power as we begin to embrace that and embody the experience of it. I love that. I'm in my doctoral program right now. And I noticed that there is more research on energy. There is more research in understanding things, not so much in just a cognitive way, but let's look down at the body and certain modalities are not necessarily being looked at in the same way now. So I think we're moving in the right direction. I have a personal question for you before we move into the community members questions, if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay, great. Thank you. So Firstly, I think it's clear that you shifted from the conditioned self towards a more authentic experience and expression of who you are, but it hasn't always been easy. And in fact, there were key times that I actually remember that were pretty difficult. I remember the moment when you spoke your truth publicly about being in a, what I think you called at the time, a throuple, and you're now coining it an extended relationship. I remembered that you so eloquently announced the love that was shared between you and two partners, Lolly and Jenna. And I also remember that this disclosure was radically empowering to me um, and what I thought would be empowering for others as well as they sort of, you know, reflect on their own truths. But instead, this was a time when you faced a lot of hate-based messages from many people And you lost some 18,000 followers on Instagram alone. I want to begin by acknowledging that when I began the journey that I've been sharing throughout this conversation, 
I didn't know how I wanted to spend my Sunday. So talk about not knowing myself, mm -hmm. my truth. And I just wanted to begin there because I think a lot of us, especially as we get older, we shame ourselves when we don't know. As we yeah. begin to peel right back all of this conditioning and we're left with who am I? What do I want? I really want to emphasize um, that that's how my journey began. I saw all of the ways I was outsourcing decisions, looking to other people for their input, trying not to disappoint them if I did have an inkling of what it was that I wanted or needed in any given moment. So I was, again, the embodiment of not knowing who I was, right. not knowing what my truth was, let alone not having the ability to step through the possibility of disappointing another person, of being misinterpreted, and especially coming from a field who I was very much taught, right? not to be yeah. a person, not to share, yeah. you know, my truth, definitely not in the clinical rooms, let alone this new social media thing was new. So I just wanted to begin there by sharing that I did not come preloaded oh, with no. yeah. knowing what my <laughs> truth was, with being able to speak it so publicly. This is very much a journey I've lived in the public eye as I've been, you know, creating even the decision to create the Instagram account in and of itself was my first exercise. And wait a minute, I do have some things that I'm, you know, want to say and share and yeah. talk to people and connect with people more authentically mm -hmm. around. And that's actually within the community, how we first connect it. Uh, Jenna was one of those handles from very early on when I put up the Instagram itself that I would just interact with. Um, I saw how resonating she was with what I was sharing. I was, you know, reading what it is that she was sharing on her page. And mm -hmm. we were kind of in that level of alignment that it became a no brainer. Yeah. Um, we actually met each other for the first time. I flew out to LA. I had my first kind of LA based podcast opportunity, I think a year or two in after having the account up. So, you know, it was huge for me to be out there. And I decided I knew that there was a very large online or, you know, community based in LA that was from the online world. So I thought, how cool would this be if I know many of us are feeling like I am lonely, we want to connect more authentically, we're all on this healing journey. Mm -hmm. Let me set up some way to do it. So I set up a guide, a free guided meditation. I picked somewhere on the beach. I had no idea where I was even going. I brought a <laughs> megaphone. I just stood in front of people for the first time oh, ever, yeah. physical humans. I was so scared out of my oh, mind. My and lo and behold, Jenna was one of those people. Uh, everyone so sweetly lined up afterward and wanted to, you know, say hi. And so I had moments to connect with every person that was in attendance there and Jenna being one of them. So now I had this, you know, face and this in-person opportunity and felt her resonance there. So became a no brainer when we opened the self healer circle after hearing from that community that they want it somewhere more private, want it somewhere somewhat more structured of a community. So it opened up the virtual membership very soon after um, it was clear that Lolly and I needed more help. So intuitively Jenna actually pinged, I think kind of hearts connecting, sent a message Perfect. saying, I know what it is that you're doing, what you're up to. I have the same vision for the future. I'd love to you know, do this together, no brainer. So she came on board, flash forward some more time. Now we're living in LA. Lolly and I had always wanted to make the choice to move out West, to get yeah. more sunshine. So very naturally starting to spend more time together, starting to continuing to build this business together, continuing to grow in alignment in terms of what we wanted for our future. And not though speaking of anything, you know, it was very clear Lolly and I were, I mean, we're married. We were in a committed marriage at this time. And though nothing was being spoken for quite a period of time that what was a very, and I mapped this onto all of these concepts in terms of listening to our heart, there was a couple month period where things got really difficult. 
um, where there was just minor conflicts over seemingly inconsequential things, mm -hmm. you know, like you brought home the wrong apples from the grocery store and I like this <laughs> apple, or you didn't say this in a text. And again, just wanting to illustrate all of the different moments where, right, what we're fighting about on the surface maybe isn't really what's going on in a deeper level, yeah. because what was going on for the three of us, you know, separately and very much together was there was starting to be interest, attraction in each other. And, mm -hmm. you know, not any Lolly or I wanting to speak of it because we're in a committed relationship. Jenna not knowing what to do with it because she knew we were in a committed relationship and very confusing. So all of this truth right in our heart beneath the surface that was being expressed in all of these moments of irritation and of conflict until, of course, uh, one Saturday. And I'm I'm so grateful to Jenna for being the brave one, as I say, mm -hmm. in so many ways where she sat us both, Lolly and I, down separately and acknowledged to us her part of the story, which was that, you know, she was starting to have feelings and interest and, you know, understanding that she had no idea of how we would take what it was that she was sharing and also understanding that we might not be interested in, you know, opening up or, or exploring a possibility of being together if it was even possible. I wouldn't even have the name Thruple at this time. If I'm being honest, Lucy, yeah. I had to Google, um, <laughs> is this possible? Do people do this? What the heck yeah. is this? Um, though long, long story short after that. Yeah. So she brought it to the table um, honored and gave both Lolly and I time, wanted us both to have time to, you know, kind of tune into what it was in our hearts, obviously have a conversation, the two of us together. And because Lolly and I had, you know, evolved our relationship so much from so much of that conditioning or what I call that dysfunctional trauma bond patterning. And we had kept committed to the desire, which is what I hope to um, illustrate in how to do the work or how to be the love you seek, which is that love, right, is the ability to tune into ourself and express ourself authentically and also the gift, the safety and the security that we can give to all of those around us, not even just our romantic partners, for them to have that space of exploration and to maintain those connections, even if someone thinks or feels differently than us in any given moment or wants or needs something different, there still can be, right, an alignment toward future that we can work toward together. So Lolly and I foundationally have always built the choices that we try to embody day in and day out in our relationship around that. So when this mm -hmm. conversation, you know, came up and both her and I were able to admit that there was attraction and similar feelings that were happening for both of us as well. Um, mm -hmm. We did make the decision very curiously. Like I wasn't joking when I said, I think the three of us started to Google, like, do people do this? And we oh. saw one example of it. Um, and so then us then living as that then meant Jenna and I, by that time, were beginning to record a podcast together. There was becoming a lot of moments because we were all so committed to being and expressing ourselves authentically. Yeah. I was starting to get noticed when out in public much more frequently. So we were starting to have moments of self-censorship of like, oh, maybe I can't use this example because it was with you and not Lolly. And will that confuse people? And how will it be if you and I are out and we're holding hands and that, you know, if someone starts to know what my partner Lolly looks like and you're not her. And so yeah. it became a like, we need to talk about this because it's not feeling good that we're leaving yeah. out um, this aspect of our experience. So the decision mm -hmm. then that we made to share it with the community was based in our own commitment to living authentically, to not, you know, censoring. We fully well knew going into that, that there could be a whole bunch of different reactions. And as much as that day was our largest unfollow day across, I think the, what, five years I've been on social media now, it was the most that we've lost in one day of followers. Um, we got many different messages, some of which were not very nice at all. And on this other hand of that, 
we got so much more support, appreciation, even gratitude um, from people that were, you know, living similar lifestyles that were considering and also just people that were coming to the awareness. And again, this doesn't even have to be a conversation of opening up anyone's relationship who's listening. Mm -hmm. All of those small moments where you have those little inner desires or pings, or you know what it is that you want or you need, and you're not expressing it. And I hope, and I illustrate it uh, in the epilogue of this book of, you know, living in truth really does oftentimes shift us away from conflict and all that comes with it when we're not living, you know, in our full self-expression and allows us to be in more alignment with ourself and often then allows our relationships to be in more alignment and collaboration. Yeah. And just like that, the relationship you have with Jenna and Lolly are now more in collaboration, more in authenticity. Um, and so too are the connections that you have with your community because you're showing up owning your authentic self, which is the message that you share and you truly embody it. Of course. Thank you. And just to acknowledge, there are still very many moments of conflict that are about course. different things. You are I in don't a relationship. Want to sure <laughs> they go away entirely. Now I have two people with all of our past and all of our conditioning to navigate. So that's yeah. a whole other rabbit hole we can go down another time. But just to leave it on that, um, it was not a magic wand though. It was, it did yeah. remove those moments where when there is conflict now, we can speak more deeply from what is actually going on as opposed to yeah. making it about the apples or the you know left out text message. <laughs> so let's move to the three community questions. Our first question is from Caesar from Australia. Caesar says, hi, Dr. LaPera. I bought your book, How to Meet Yourself, and I couldn't get past the first task, which was envisioning your future self. When I was in my 30s, I could envision that my what my life would look like at 50. I'm now in my 40s, and I cannot envision what my life would look like at 50 or beyond. I feel hopeless, but I would like to know how I could envision my future self. Also, might you have any resources that can help me? Our inability to feel hope, to access, like we were talking a bit about earlier, that creative space of imagining oftentimes for a future that's different from the current one that we're living is so much a function of our body and our nervous system in particular. Then I think most more often than not, we logically think, oh, it's my mind, my mind can do that. So if we're not grounded in our physical presence, if we're not feeling safe in the current reality, so Caesar, whatever it is that looks like that's happening, you know, in your current experience within your forties, if you're not, as we've been talking about this entire conversation, present to it, Right? If you're not embodying daily habits that are in care of your nervous system and allowing you to build that emotional or stress ability, that tolerance, that resilience, then chances are you're not going to be able to enter that creative space. Hopelessness in and of itself is a, a symptom, in my opinion, at least of nervous system dysregulation, often of a shutdown nervous system after years of not having, you know, the ability to tolerate all of the emotions that I imagine you've accumulated in 40 years. I've just turned 41 myself. So I know how much, right, can be of all of that experience if you don't have um, the tools to to navigate that. And if your nervous system very naturally adapt it in terms of beginning to shut down, go into as opposed to that Vague ventral vagal state that you were referencing earlier, Lucy, that dorsal vagal state, right? Where we mm-hmm. don't even have motivation to imagine a future. If we even have an inkling of what we, what it is that we might like to see, we don't have the energy 
um, to begin the journey to create that. And then very understandably, we become hopeless. And then within that shutdown state of our nervous system, we cannot imagine that future self. So sharing that to say that in my 30s, I would have too answered very much like you. I can't do this exercise. I don't have the ability to think, you know, to imagine what it is that I want for the future. And the resources then are hearing that you have uh, the workbook itself. There is so much in the workbook. I mean, it's broken down into three different sections. The first section focusing on building that body consciousness or the ability to live physically embodied. There's so many resources in there in terms of breath work and grounding practices to begin to regulate our nervous system. The second section you'll meet is about the emotional self, a self again, attuning to our emotions, learning some new coping tools or strategies to deal with those emotions. And then by the time you venture into that third section, right, meeting your authentic self as the title of the book implies, right? Then through the consistent practice, of course, not blowing through the workbook overnight and not doing the practices. It is the embodiment of those slow, consistent daily promises or actions that you will become, like you said earlier, "Mm, I I maybe begin, I can begin to feel a little more hope. Um, I remember actually the first time my partner Lolly looked at me and we were sharing something and very much embodying like you Caesar. She looked at me and goes, oh my God, Nicole, I I think I'm seeing hope in you. Um, and again, that was when I was in my mid thirties was the first spark. And I was like, I think you're right. I think for a minute I'm feeling a bit hopeful. And that's because I was on my journey enough, beginning to regulate my nervous system through those small daily actions that I was beginning to feel that hope Mm -hmm. and to think differently about a future that I could imagine and create for myself. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thanks for sharing that. Now I have another one from Christine from Ontario, Canada. She says, I am expecting an apology from an emotionally immature parent that I know I will never receive. How can I let go of yearning this apology? And once I let it go, how can I navigate a non-toxic relationship with this parent going forward? Christine, thank you for asking. I'm imagining a question that is probably going to resonate with many of you as we begin to heal, right? And become aware of all of these different patterns as we've been talking about. A natural next, you know, instinct is we want to go back, especially our caregivers who created this conditioning or, or who's within the relationship that created this conditioning. It's so natural to want to go back and to be validated, right? To share what it is, our perspective now on that relationship and to have them hear and validate our perspective and even more so to give us um, that apology that it is that we want and even hearing in your question, that awareness that as the reality that many of us will live, we might not have caregivers that are able to do that, Mm -hmm. that are able to even shift perspective. Again, as I talk about in how to be the love you seek, the ability to shift perspective is actually, as I'm sure you're not gonna be surprised at this point in the conversation, a function of our nervous system, right? To be able to say, okay, well, this is, you know, from the caregiver's perspective, what mom or dad or whomever thought happened, but I can put aside what it is that I thought happened and hear now from my child how it was for them. So meaning if they don't have that ability, um, that emotional resilience tolerance or emotional maturity to be able to do that as you're so beautifully aware, many of us might not have that in our caregivers and it's Mm -hmm. of no fault of our own. So when I'm hearing questions about apologies or when we want the apology, often we can give that. So even when we're kind of going in there for that acknowledgement, what is so important is our own ability to validate what it is that happened. 
which means not only the story of what happened, it's an embodiment practice, being with the experience of what happened, right? Which means for many of us grieving what didn't happen, you know, feeling the hurt and the anger over what did happen in other instances and allowing on our own individual side of the journey, the space and the presence to be with all of those emotions. And then once we, right, have integrated, if you will, our own past, it's already living in our body. Now we're just becoming conscious and present to all of the feelings that were beneath the surface. Now, right, if we do go into request or to share that story with our our family or our caregiver, wanting an apology, though, if we can, right, continue to be valid in what it is that happened for ourselves even when we don't get the apology because a lot of us go in right not having had that whole journey with ourselves and what happened and we're just looking to feel better yeah. right and if that person then doesn't give us that apology right now we're devastated and hurt all over again yeah. so saying that to say that the value in my opinion and the healing is of that individual side of things mm-hmm. being so grounded and you know so aware and taking all that time to be with yourself around what it is that had happened that as hurtful as it might be when you don't get that apology right you still have your yourself Mm -hmm. to fall back on and then this is the second part of the question then based on right people's actions giving you information if your caregiver isn't able to hear your side they deny it they override it right? They invalidate it. They tell you it's not what happened. They tell you you should be over it by now or whatever version that you get, right? And then how do they continue to show up and try to navigate the relationship with you? And if it continues to be dysfunctional and continues to be toxic, then again, in terms of boundaries, they're choices we make for ourselves. And then of course, you know, Christina, it's an individual journey in terms of how you want to shift or modify how it is that you're showing up in interaction or maybe not showing up Mm -hmm. in interaction with that particular caregiver based on not only what it is that they respond to in terms of whether they're able to give you the apology or not, how it is that they continue to show up. So forgiveness, I think is what I'm getting at as much as we look, you know, and want to, you know, kind of get that from someone else or hear from someone else that apology, it's kind of like the same, the other side of that coin, Mm -hmm. There can be so much work individually that we gift ourselves with Mm -hmm. if and when we know um, we're not going to hear what it is that we want, that apology that we want, and more so if we're not going to get the change that we want from that caregiver, which might mean, again, for many of us that there are new boundaries, new shifts and changes that we put in place Mm -hmm. so that we can maintain that safe and secure connection with ourselves in absence of them doing anything differently at all. And of course, then mourning, because then allowing ourselves to be with how it is to be invalidated in that moment, the hurt, the disappointment, right? That little child in us, I think, is always there. We want, right, this parent to be different in some way. We want to almost be able to go back in time and have them, even in our adult life, meet the needs that they were never able to meet. And the reality for many of us is they might not be able to, they might not have the tools to. Yeah. We don't have to personalize it. It was never about us in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and we can continue on that same journey. Mm-hmm. And to your wise point throughout this conversation, you mentioned that shifting from conditioned patterns can take a long time, even a decade or longer. So it sounds like this parent may not have started the journey or possibly may not have the self-awareness to start their journey 
And this, this can feel just so challenging because there's just, there's no same page to sort of meet on. And so Nicole, with that, you mentioned forgiveness and Nicole, I think you and I are on the same page for this. So I just want to make sure that everyone is aware of what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness is not about forgiving the people or person for what they did, but instead this type of forgiveness is about forgiving them for being human, forgiving them for not having that awareness to look deeper, to check things out. So this forgiveness really is for the one who's healing because you're not sort of saying this is okay. What happened to me was okay. No, it was not okay. And so I'm putting a boundary. And Nicole, I'm sure that you could add even more to that if you'd like. Yeah. And I think that comes that kind of compassionate way to view even those that hurt us comes from when we develop the ability to do that ourselves. Yes. Right. When we're able to see bringing this conversation full circle, all the ways that we betrayed our own wants and needs, we've self-sabotaged. We've even hurt others when we're locked in survival mode. I talk a lot about that again in the book of how even the person we love the most dearly, when we're locked and loaded in one of those nervous system responses, they become merely the threat. And I know I've said many hurtful things and done many hurtful things and right? This doesn't condone continued hurtful behavior, right? Or action though, when we're able to zoom out and have that understanding of, oh, I was feeling threatened in these moments, or, you know, I went down these self-sabotaging or self-betraying paths because, you know, I was overwhelmed and I didn't have the learned experience of creating space for myself, right? Now I can often see um, someone else and their behavior from that same compassionate vantage point. But again, just to continue to reiterate, that doesn't mean, right, that we have to continue to forgive hurtful, abusive, violating actions. We can understand why it is someone who is hurting, abusing, or violating us. And still, it is of uh, the utmost importance that we create the boundaries that we need to keep ourselves safe in those moments. Yeah. Well said. Very well said. Thank you for sharing that. We have one more question from a community member. This question comes from Stephanie from Ontario, Canada, which centers around loss of children. For those of you who find this topic challenging to hear, maybe due to your own experiences, please feel free to fast forward or you know come back to it when or if you feel called to. And Stephanie, like Caesar and Christine, I'm very touched that you are sharing your truth here and I'm confident it will help a lot of other people who are going through similar situations. So with that, Stephanie shares the following. I lost two babies in two separate pregnancies seven and eight years ago due to a rare placenta complication. Both my sons were born around 28 weeks and lived long enough to bless me with their embrace outside of their incubators. I also had a massive pulmonary ablation, which is a blood clot, after my second boy's uh, C-section birth, which was diagnosed from complaints of intense mid-back pain. I then tried to have a baby for the third time and birthed another son around the 28-week mark. He survived and is six years old today. My question is, every year when I get close to my angel children's birthdays, I feel intense physical pain in my back, just like I felt when my babies were born and when I suffered from that blood clot. I want to understand this pain. Is it phantom pain attached to triggering dates or events? For example, am I really feeling the pain or is it all in my head? Or can the memory that arises each year on their birthdays reactivate the physical pain I felt when I was birthing children I feared losing? Thank you, Stephanie. Um a lot of emotion, even hearing 
your journey and all of the grief that I imagine that you are continuing, <clears throat> even reflected by the second part of your question. So thank you for so vulnerably gifting us with this question. And um, pain, I think all pain is real. Um, one of the byproducts I hope of any of the work that you meet of my own is that interconnection between the mind and the body. Um, and right, the all of the emotions that live in the memory of these states, especially around, I'm really happy that this came up a bit earlier when we talked about loss, right? And being excluded and the physical pain that, that it lights up, you know, it activates our brain in a physical way. So needless to say, your pain is not in your head or made up or phantom, I think was the word that you used. Uh, it is very physiologically real present. We carry all of these emotions in our body. And, you know, I think many of us have those, you know, anniversaries mm -hmm. for some of us, it's songs, music, I think can be a big one, certain sense, right. Maybe of a past loved one, whether or not they're physically still alive on this earth or just not in a relationship with us and become completely you know, the embodiment of all of the grief, the loss, all of the emotions of the relationship. So for you, Stephanie, right, those anniversary dates as they approach, you are a living, breathing memory um, down to your physiology, right, and all of those sensations. So as those dates approach, you know, it is, I think, very natural experience for all of those very real emotions, especially with even yeah. yourself having gone through such a traumatic experience with this embolism. Um, in addition to the trauma you were already experiencing with, you know, the early birth of sons that, you know, and, and premature birth and everything, and even just the hospital experience, I can only imagine, you know, it's very clinical, very sterile. Um, so talk about trauma after trauma. I think it's no surprise is I guess how I want to kind of offer the answer that you are in the embodiment of as if being back in time, as if being in that day, in those moments. And then you had to repeat that on two different occasions. So it is your body's way of emotionally, you know, kind of revisiting what is still a very alive emotional trauma. And again, I just wanted to offer that piece about the pain, you know, to back into this question to even more validate uh, the, ex the actual experience of, it's not just that your mind has gone back. It's really all of the physiology, the very real physical pain centers, or I'm sure all it up, all being activated. Um, so saying that to say, with this awareness, you know, and I, I know this wasn't necessarily the question, my hope though is, you know, not only to integrate this awareness, if you are in any way, shape or form shaming or questioning even your own validity of what is happening, hopefully this answer and hopefully this whole conversation is allowing you to relieve um, any sort of, of that kind of tendency, any sort of the shame that you might feel if this does continue even to the foreseeable future decades, maybe even to come. I think a lot of us write this idea, oh, it's so many, so long ago now, I should be over it. I have a healthy kid, he's six. Yeah, I mean, so somewhat plus six years ago, right? If it continues for 16 more years, right? Giving yourself the ability um, to be compassionately present. And also I'm a big fan of of kind of, preemptive planning, right? Knowing when these dates are coming, you know, to the best of your ability, creating the comfort, whatever, to whatever extent you can in your current present moments around those dates, you know, not just trying to push through and get whatever it is you have to have done, you know, if you can reschedule, I mean, as practical as things like that and creating 
the landing space, assuming that you will still continue to feel all of the emotions with those two very devastating losses um, for time to come. So we can, to the best of our ability, right, restructure, ask for support, however it is. Maybe you don't want support. Maybe you want to be alone and just in in memory, whatever it is that will individually feel comforting to you, mm-hmm. right, as you begin to see the date on the calendar approach, make sure that you're taking care of your body in those moments and creating, again, the space for you to be with whatever comes up emotionally. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much. I know that all three of um, these community members were really excited to get their questions out. So I just want to thank you so much because I know they're probably all deeply touched with your response. So I really appreciate you taking that time. Of course, I appreciate this opportunity. And thank you all three of you, like I said, for, for gifting us with these questions to so publicly have a conversation about. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And as our episode comes to an end, I want to shed some light on your incredible new book, How to Be the Love You Seek. Before this interview, you gifted me a copy of this book and I sincerely could not put it down. I just want to say that for any of you who are looking to shift from inauthentic patterns or childhood conditioning toward a more embodied sense of self and authenticity, this is the book for you, which will be out November 28th and is currently out on pre-order. So exciting. Thank you. Thank you for again for your kind words. Um, I'm so excited for this book to be living and breathing in the world. It is available on pre-order now. It hopefully can be found where most book major book retailers, so wherever it is that you like to purchase a book, um, give a search. I'm hoping um, pre-orders really do help us to make sure that all of the different bookstores. I'm a big fan of bookstores, local bookstores. So anyone who has pre-ordered, who does choose to pre-order, I do want to send a sincere thank you. It really does keep this book on book retailers radar, which makes them then more likely for those of us that like to just cruise bookstores and happen upon. And I'm always a big fan of this message traveling that way. So wherever it is you like to buy books, I do have a website up dedicated to this book. It's howtobetheloveyouseek.com. I have some book retailers highlighted that I know for sure are going to be stocking the book on there. Um, So you can take a look at that. Also my general website, theholisticpsychologist.com. If you want any other information, I have similar book websites up for my previous two books, how to be the love, how to do the work and how to meet yourself, as well as more information on the community self healer circle. And then of course, I'm a big fan and will always prioritize all of the free resources, all the daily conversations across all the social media platforms where uh, we're sharing about this, these concepts, um, often gifting free meditations on our YouTube channel. So however it is that you like to consume your social media, come visit not only to get this information, though, to be part of this ever-growing, incredible community, which in my opinion, there is so much healing found not only on the memes that go up that I do hope are helpful, but in the comment section of beautiful individuals on a similar journey from quite literally around the world sharing their experience. So come join us on any of the different social media platforms at The Holistic Psychologist. Well said. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been an honor. And thank you for what you do um, for these conversations that you facilitate, not only so publicly now, but the work that you personally do. Mm-hmm. I'm so touched. Many thanks, Nicole. Heal Podcast is an educational platform that aims to depathologize trauma through meaningful conversations. 
None of the information provided is intended to replace conventional therapy, and all listeners are invited to seek their own professional services for their unique concerns. We are thrilled to have our listeners as part of our growing community. We strive to make our conversations as educational as possible and, of course, interruption-free, which is why we do not include advertisements. So with that, I ask that you please subscribe to Heal Podcast, like and share it with your friends, and of course, with your social media to support the growth of this channel. I'd love to stay in touch with you, so come follow me on Instagram at Heal Psychotherapy. You can follow me on YouTube, and you can also come visit us at HealPodcast.com, where we do give away lots of free resources. You can get a free ebook, and you can also submit a question for our next guest. Last but not least, I'd like to take a moment to thank Jordan Bernard for creating the music for Heal Podcast. And of course, I'd like to thank you so much for being here. And as always, I'm truly rooting for you.